0: Good morning again. Good morning. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. And I'm going to bring us forward to our week number five of our stories, Story of the Bible series. I I think as elders, we get together and pray about what we're preaching. And in this, we're doing this series alongside our sister church in Austin Mosaic. I think our collective dream is that we would see God raise up a movement of people that go from hearing about stories in the Bible to really hearing God in the story of the Bible, being swept up into the story that God is writing as we heed the voice of God from what we see in His story. So today, we're going to move forward to talk about covenant is the topic we'll cover today. We've spent four weeks in Genesis, Uh, going through different topics from creation to the catastrophe of sin to the calling of Abraham. And today we're going to see what God does with the descendants of Abraham, largely through his chosen liberator, Moses. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me to honor God's word. We're in Exodus now, Exodus chapter 19. If you brought one of these powerful paper Bibles, I'm going to give you a chance to flip to Exodus 19, the second book of the Bible, or scroll down to, to verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 6. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, To myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel (laughs) the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. We really do need to see what you see. So give us eyes. We need to heed your voice. So help us. And all of that so we can be, above all things, be yours. And to rest in you. Your word resting in us. And bear much fruit. And allow no other complications in life to take away from that. Help us. Amen. I want to catch us up with the story of the Bible so far. The first, first topic we covered for a few weeks was the topic of creation at the start of Genesis. God created us to experience the extreme pleasure of walking with him. We were made to be extremists in the extreme pleasure of knowing him, growing in knowing him. But then we get quickly to chapter three of Genesis and we see the catastrophe of human sin. We perverted the pleasure. The very source of our pleasure is God. We began to mistrust that he is for us. And that his goodness leads us to life everlasting. We, we rejected and rebelled against God. The next several chapters of Genesis really cover just this back and forth between our failure and God's forgiveness. It's almost like a competition where God's forgiveness seems to be way better than our failure. And even in the midst of this great failure, which seemed to get worse and worse and worse, we get to what we call, covered last week, the calling of God... On this rebellious people, God calls out a people for, him, for himself from Abram. That's what we covered last week. One of the major, major reasons we're in here doing church right now is because some Middle Eastern guy thousands of years ago heard the calling of the voice of God and he obeyed. We're here right now because Abram heard, he listened, and he obeyed. That's one of the major reasons. If we could only see, really, about how so much of our life, in fact, The entirety of our blessing comes from the obedience of someone else. We'd be so much more at peace with how we are to conduct our lives. That's really what Abraham heard. He heard God telling him to, to be blessed and called him out of darkness and into light. And he sat with him and said, I'm going to give you a promise that makes your descendants greater than the stars and the sand and all that. And with that great hyperbole of a promise... Abraham waited. Can anyone relate to that? Like, oh, that's a great promise, but okay, wait. How long? A long time. And so Abraham decided day after day to not harden his heart, and God blessed him. He gave him a son, named him Isaac. Isaac had a son after waiting himself it's decades for his own son. Had a son and named him Jacob, who God later named him Israel as well. Give him the name Israel. Jacob, Israel, same guy. And then the sons of Israel. He had 12 sons. Dude was busy. It's a whole different story. A lot of heartache with that busyness. 12 sons and their descendants in the time of a famine went down into the land of Egypt and were enslaved there for 400 years. Slavery is one of those sad parts of the story of humanity from the beginning, which is a byproduct of human sin. At its roots, Genesis 3, the fall into sin, produces one of these ugly parts of human history, slavery. And it's really strange in the midst of all this that God chose to bless the people, the descendants of Abraham, taking them into the promised land, by way of suffering slavery for generations. Evidently, God has always seen fit to punk the devil by using human suffering to enact his redemptive purposes with mankind. To, to take the people that are called into a people that are of covenant, he uses our suffering that's just what we're going to talk about today. Verse 1 of Exodus 19, God has them in the wilderness, uh, the wilderness of Sinai. Three months, it says, exactly three months after taking them out of Egypt by his miraculous hand. Verse 2, for some reason, mysteriously, it seems to repeat that they're encamped in the wilderness of Sinai. I'm not really sure kind of like why the language repeats itself, but... I learn often that in the Bible, if I read slowly, things are there purposefully. It's almost like God wants us to know, hey, during all of this cool stuff, they were in the wilderness. Isn't it funny how often when God takes us out of one place and before bringing us into the best place, there seems to be kind of like an in-between place, like a place of preparation often that he, he puts us in. I don't know why Israel, spoiler, wandered around in this wilderness for 40 years on what would have been like a two-week trek that they should have gotten to the Promised Land. I don't know why they wandered for 40 years, but that's just the point. I don't know. I think maybe none of us know. I think they didn't know for sure. Moses probably didn't know why they had to do that, but God knew. And maybe in your life... You don't know why God does what he does, but you don't have to. God knows what he's doing. Say that. Say that. God knows what he's doing, what he's doing. In, my life. in my life. And you know what? If you could just admit to yourself that you don't know what you're doing, but also take off the burden of thinking that you have to, your life would be so much better. Yeah. The covenant, which we're going to talk about today, is so much different then God expecting you, just kind of like taking his hands off of you, backing away and saying, man, I really hope they figure it out. Well, if they do, they'll be blessed. That's not what the covenant is. The covenant is very, very different where he continues to be God and our job within the relationship of this agreement he enacts with us is very different. That's what we're going to cover today. Largely, I'm going to focus on verses four, five, and six. And my heart is that just like God called Moses out in verse three, before I knew this, and said, come and listen to me. I pray that you, by faith, would draw near to God because he is going to whisper to you truths about his covenant, covenant and reaffirm the agreement that's still available to us in relationship with him. So I'm going to, go, I'm going to cover verses four, five, and six. I'm going to hinge my thoughts off of three verses that I see respectively displayed in these three verses, the last three verses of our passage, these verbs that I'm going to organize my thoughts with are see, hear, and be. I think you'll see these three words in verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's start with see. Before leading his people into the promises of their future God wanted them first to see and remember his great faithfulness in their past and and this still is really at work in the importance of what we see God wants us to say you can trust me if the circumstances seem like they're promising or if they don't You have enough evidence of who I am and who I've demonstrated myself to be in your past to be at peace in your present and to be confident in your future. He says, see who I am. See what I've done. Remember what I've done and weigh all of that over and against your present anxieties and your future concerns. Verse four, you yourselves have, what's that next word? Y'all can be aggressive. Seen, Thank you. We're a talkback church, if you didn't know that. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That's one thing that's somewhat of a different message that I'm seeing in this. It's better than the promised land and God bringing them into a promised land is God bringing us to himself. Because if circumstances are great or circumstances aren't, the great thing is that before all that, God brings people to himself, which is heaven, better than the promised land. You've seen how I've brought you to myself. This is what I love about this. This starts with these words you yourselves have seen. It's pretty aggressive language to make very, very clear hey, look, you've seen this. You, hey. You've seen what I did here. He did some very explicit miracles. It's as if God's saying, it's not just that I did miraculous things for you, because I do miraculous things for you all the time, and it seems to evade your awareness all the time, but that I've done miraculous things and seen fit to make sure that you've seen it. And I'm telling you right now, see what I've done? God wants us to see and to be at ease by looking back at what he's done and who he is. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the challenge of faith is to be present where I am and trust him, the person of who he is, looking back on on the past, being at ease in the present, being confident, ridiculously confident for my future. The Exodus displayed perhaps the greatest metaphysical miracles, these chapters before chapter 19, probably the greatest metaphysical miracles in all of human history outside of the life, the miracles, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, there was 10 plagues. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did first to the Egyptians, right? He warned kindly, warned his enemies, What kind of army would do that? God warned his enemies in Egypt, let my people go or these things will come upon you. I mean, God plagued them with hail and frogs and various insects and they didn't listen. This was supernatural events. He brought them out of Egypt after all of this and they were going through the Red Sea. Many of you all have heard this story that the, God parted the waters So it was like a wall on either side The people of Israel walked through As on dry ground Walked through the ocean I mean Jesus walked on water Which was one up from that But God before that Allowed his people to walk through the water And walled it on both sides And the Egyptian army Followed them af- in after them To catch them And God brought the waters back down He's a boss he says, you yourselves have seen how I, what I did to them, but also what I did for you. It's like I bore you up on eagles' wings, as it were, using this illustration just to say, look, this was unusually powerful, miraculous, unreasonable circumstances, as if like an eagle brought you out. That's how much I intimately care for you. You, you yourselves have seen I love in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So so there's something better in being near, intimate with God that's beyond what we could see. And yet God is saying, I've shown you enough that if you would slow down and see even the things that I've shown you, you'd be at more peace than you are now. I think of this a lot in my life. I seem to pretty consistently strive for future worries. I, can tell you, I can't tell you how many times in my life I've thought, oh, once I get there, I'll be good. I won't worry anymore. You know, like, once I'm married, once I have a kid, once that kid's out of diapers, once I have a better income, and every time I seem to figure out something else to worry about. That's all of us, I'm pretty sure. If that's not you, please come up afterward. I want you to lead one of our growth groups. You can be my pastor. But that's us. We we seem to get ahead of ourselves so easily. Instead of being at peace with who God is now and remembering those important rhythms of what he's done in the past. Right now, we're... We have something else we figured out how to worry about, a property tax bill. And God's telling us, you know, these, these kids that I've given you a house for them to live in, which that was kind of a thing that you were worried about a few years ago. And, and, and remember when you were kind of worried about the, if the kids would even exist or not because of the infertility thing? Remember that, Peter? Remember all these powerful things? If I've done all these miracles for you, how am I not going to pay a property tax bill yeah. for them? Yeah for these people that shouldn't exist outside of my miraculous hand. And he doesn't say these things to me so that I would be ashamed about asking for things in the future. He wants us to ask him. He's a good father. But he wants us to be at ease in our asking and say, I'm confident about this thing compared to the miracles I've seen. The needs that I have for the present and the future are put in their place. And my faith for even greater things than that Overflows and springs forth from that. That's why God wants us to see, to remember. See, and now hear. Here. Verse 5 is one of those verses where translation of the scripture from Hebrew into the English really diminishes what God is speaking. I think it's the best English translation we can have here. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. I think that's the best translation we can have. But if we slow down and see the richness of some of the powerful words used in Hebrews, I think it's going to help us. I try not to do this too much because I really do believe that uh, God can speak to you in English or Spanish or Texan or whatever language you prefer. But I want us to look back at the original language here. These first seven words of verse five, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey, actually come, those seven words, come from one Hebrew word. One rich Hebrew word. That word is Shema. Shema. One word. Now, if you will obey. This is a really celebrated word. This is a, a, a rich word in, in Hebrew culture and Jewish culture for the last three or 4,000 years. I want us to think back. Last week, we talked about how God, through His Holy Spirit and His calling on our life, allows what, what sin has complicated in our life to really be as simple as listen and obey. And what's cool about this word is... We see in Hebrew, there is not even a difference between listen and obey. Listen and obey is really just one word here. It means heed, listen. When we listen, when we, when we hear, when we truly hear, we are obeying. Shema. This word has been one of the most sacred words, like I said, in, in Hebrew culture. Jews for centuries have written these words on their clothing, on their doorposts of their house. The Shema is actually the name they named a a, a famous scripture in actually Deuteronomy six, named it after the very first word in that in those six verses. Very first word is the same word, Shema. Right before Moses dies, after this forty years in the wilderness, before the Israelites go into the promised land, he says these words. The first word is Shema. In the in the Jewish people, even just call this whole promise, this, this text, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these things that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on your way and when you lie down and when you rise. You'll bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontlets of your your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When God says hear, it's a little bit different than what we tend to think of hearing in all of our Uh, multitasking or whatever the distracted elements of our lives are. When he expects us to hear, it's no different than his expectation for us to obey. He says, see what I've done in the past. Now I expect you to hear me. Which is to say, obey me. Really hear and heed. In May will be 13 years of being married for me. And uh, praise God, mostly God's fault that the, the years keep going on because I provide all the weakness for his strength. But I've learned the hard way after over a decade that there's a big difference between hearing and hearing my wife. There's a big difference. I learned the hard way again. In any relationship, especially our most important relationship that's way more important than marriage, our relationship with God, God wants to free us so that we see what he's done before we were hearing to the degree that we can truly hear. And he knows that that life process that will need the help of other people to really hear him. Not just prophetic voices in our lives, but people that tell us, hard things in growth groups. Tell us when we're not hearing right. Hey, clearly, buddy, by the way you're kind of living and spending and tweeting, you're not hearing. So you need to hear. We need that. I need that. You need that. He wants us to see what he's done to the degree that it transforms the way we hear him and walk with him. There's, other, there's one other word that's translated into our English from the first part of verse 5 that I think is important. It says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. I think contextually, this first word in, in our English translation, which I use the ESV, I think it's a really good word to start with the word now. Because remember where they were. Remember verse two, 1 and 2? He highlights the fact that these folks are encamped in the wilderness. They're in between one place and the other place. But he's not saying, once you enter into the promised land, then obey He's saying, now hear me, right now, not then, not when circumstances are more ideal, but when circumstances are the least ideal they've been, obey me now. Sometimes we have this tendency to think that the promised land is going to be like easy, kind of like automatic. But the Israelites would find out soon that the promised land had fights of its own, He wanted to prepare them with heeding and obeying what they were saying in less than ideal circumstances because if you can obey God in those circumstances, you're more fit to enter the promised land in a way that's redemptive. And we subtly do this in our mind where we kind of give ourselves a pass when what we're really doing is passing on the ability to really walk with God and hear him now. Now if you hear my voice, Obey me. Now. We do this all the time. Oh God, you know, <clears throat> I'll obey you with my finances once they're in a better place. We do this. I'll obey you in my finances once they're in a better, better place. Uh, oh God, man, I, I see your, your, your design for human sexuality. Once I'm married, I want to be good. I want to be pure. No, no, he, he says, Now if you obey my voice, because what's ironic about that marriage thing, marriage people tend to be like, man, if only I wasn't married to this fool, then I'd be a nice person again, right? <laughs> or if, I didn't, if only I didn't have these kids just wearing me out, I'd be patient again. No, no, God's saying, I know the circumstances you're in. I'm leading you. I'm your God. Remember what I've done? Do you see that? now, If you will indeed heed my voice, hear me, obey me. That's what he's saying. See, verse four. Hear, start of verse five. And then finally, as we get into the rest of verse five and six, be, be, obedience. Obedience is a fruit of being a child of the covenant. It's not a transaction to acquire status as a child. Why do, we hear, why do we see and obey? Because it's a fruit of being, what? A treasured possession. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel Notice he makes a clear distinction. He says, you'll be my treasured possession. Now, don't get me wrong. Everything is mine to possess. The whole earth is mine. All creation is God's. But not all children are God's children. All humans are loved and belong to God. But not all humans are God's treasured possession under his covenant there's a common axiom in our culture that you hear all the time. We're all God's children. That's not really accurate. You see, we're all God's creation. We're all loved by our creator and the God who possesses all things. But that doesn't mean we're necessarily all God's children. We're, we're all his creation. Verse, verse one of Psalm 20, 24, one of my favorites, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, The world and all those who dwell therein. You see, we're all His creation, but that's not the same as being children of His covenant. We're all designed to be children of His covenant, but we've left His house and registered into the house of His enemy. Isaiah 53 All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. Ephesians 2, we are by nature, this is to say our fallen nature that we get from Genesis 3, we are by nature objects of wrath, children of darkness, or as 1 John 3 says, children of the devil. So we're all God's creation, but not necessarily his children. And this is amazing, what theologians call the common grace of God, that God has seen what we've done to rebel against Him and to join His enemy and do all sorts of evil and enslave one another and hurt one another. He's seen all this, and yet He continues to allow humans, all of us, to live and breathe. doesn't kill us. He gives us the moment of life and breath and this opportunity of repentance Being creation is not the same as being his children. Just because we're designed to be in covenant with God doesn't mean that we're in covenant with God. Just because a brick is designed to be used to build up a house doesn't mean that it it doesn't often get perverted in its use to be thrown through a glass storefront for the looting of others to enter those stores. And it's not the brick's fault And it's definitely not the the maker of the bricks' fault. We pervert creation. And just because he loves me passionately with a redemptive jealousy doesn't mean that I love him back and walk in covenant with him. We've all forfeited what would be our birthright to be children of God. But all the earth is his, it says in verse 5. And what's amazing about what this tells us from how God chose Abraham and the people of Israel to bring redemption and blessing to the whole world is that God chose from his enemies, from people who've already rejected relationship with him. He chose to enter into relationship with us, which is weird. I mean, of of all the people... In the world, whoever thinks, oh, I can't wait to get married to someone who's betrayed me. That's, what, that's my dream. I just want a boo that just betrays me <laughs> over and over and over. God chose to enter into this strange covenant with people who've already betrayed Him. So, the, the special, the, the, the common grace of not killing us when we betray Him, to the special grace of actually entering into covenant with those who've rejected him and hurt one another in our state of rebellion and rejection. That's what we're talking about here. You will be my treasured possession. We're not his children, but we, because of his grace, can become his children. It's no different than what's described in 1 John. Behold, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Why can we be children of God? Well, if God calls his rebellious creation into the family yet again. You see, God has this thing about his love that could be described as possessive. He has this idea. He thinks he owns things. Uh, he does. And he wants to bring things back under his loving dominion. You've probably heard of the, the, the love of God described as jealous. Have anyone ever been confused about why it would be jealous? Well, jealousy is not a problem if you're completely holy and perfect. And look at our verses. God's jealous love is seen in verse 4. I brought you to myself. Verse 5, to be my possession. Verse 6, to be to me a kingdom. You see, jealousy can be a holy thing. I don't share my wife, FYI. She's my wife. God says, I want you to be mine in holy covenant with me. And he pays a special price to call a people to himself to enter into covenant with people who've already rebelled against him. The covenant of special grace that God gives Israel is an amazing thing. And I need to clarify as we're Drawing towards a close, there's a difference between perfection and obedience. God calls us to obey his voice, but that's not the same as perfection. Obeying his voice also includes obeying him when he tells us to repent and seek his forgiveness. You see, being in covenant with with God and hearing him and obeying his voice means that that maybe we're not flawless, but we bring regularly, we bring our flaws to him and we confess our sin. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, but children of God are perfectible. They're able to be disciplined. We, we say, I do not define myself. You define me. You correct me. You grow me. My life is yours. It's not mine. Take it. It's yours. You do possess me. Your love is jealous for me. And I am jealous for you. That's what covenant is about. That my life does not belong to me because the one who forgives me has promised to restore me. Even at the very start of the covenant, he says, For I am a God that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving the iniquity of my children to the thousandth generation. If he forgives those who are in covenant with him, that would mean that we need forgiveness and we're not perfect. John Piper, a pastor in Minnesota, says, my obedience isn't earning the earning of his grace, but it's the evidence that I've received it. If God gives you the grace of his covenant, the power to be his child... The evidence of that is in your ongoing obedience that says, here, I have flaws, but I'm not keeping them to myself. I'm not saying, stay away from me. I get to define myself the way I want to be defined and and live my life and spend my money and engage in relationships the way I want to. No, it's, God, here's my flaws. Take them. Grow me. God has called you to be a treasured possession not a measured performer. Not wondering all the day, do I measure up? If only I measure up, then I can be his. No, he accepts us the way we are and obedience to hearing his voice is saying, okay, I'm yours. I will be yours with all my flaws. You can correct me, you can grow me. I'll do what it takes to be in a position of grace where you're defining me, affirming me. We don't earn his love, we we walk in it, knowing that we never earned it in the first place. It says that you're a holy nation. You're a holy nation. What the word holy means is you're set apart. Some of us tend to, to envy others that have certain things that we want in life sometimes. When God is wanting us to see that, look, I'm not giving you those things, because I'm actually preserving you for something better. I'm setting you apart and preserving you so that you don't go down that path. And so what you might perceive is me withholding from you is me setting you apart and holding you near to me. You're set apart, not set aside. It says you'll be a kingdom of priests. This is amazing. Priests are vessels of God's anointing. that I, The priest would receive God's anointing and as substitution, as representatives for the people, would, would spread that anointing to the people. That's what the Levites did. They were bridges of God's presence. And so what he's saying is, remember verse 4? Don't you see how I've brought you to myself? Verse 5, if you will obey me now. And then verse 6, you will be priests. So, So check this out. God draws us near to himself so that we have new anointing and power to draw others near to himself. That's what life is about. He performed these great miracles for the people of Israel at a great cost. For centuries, this covenant would be ratified year after year, reaffirmed year after year by the sacrifice of bulls and lambs. And God continued to uphold his side of the covenant. And Israel, as we'll see, continued to break their side of the covenant. Century after century, the steadfast love of God continued to uphold his end. And Israelites failed their end. So here's what God did. He said... I'm going to continue to keep my side of the covenant, but I'm actually going to go send my son so that he'll keep their side of the covenant too on their behalf, perfectly, completely, irreversibly. And that's what he did. Jesus came to give a new covenant, but listen, the new covenant in the New Testament isn't necessarily necessarily categorically new. The new covenant really puts an irreversible stamp in eternal blood on the old covenant. Instead of being ratified year after year by imperfect blood of other lambs, Jesus comes to put perfect blood on the covenant, not just of a lamb, but on the lamb, the lamb of God. He sacrifices his blood The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived. He kept the covenant that we should have kept. And he died the death that we should have died for breaking the covenant. And he died in our place so that he could purchase for himself a people as he rose from the dead. And he gives these people life and we spring to life everywhere we go, and check out as a result of what Jesus did. Check out after all this, what First Peter says. It kind of harkens back to Exodus 19. First Peter says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy." Nation. Now, now he's not just speaking to Jewish people, he's speaking to Northern Africans in this, and Middle Easterners, and, and Jewish people. He's speaking to all sorts of people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous Light. Would you pray with me?